Well, it is my greatest privilege and honor to stand before you this morning to share with you God's Word as the senior pastor of Rivermont Evangelical Presbyterian Church. Many of you don't know this, but about 10 years ago, I stood just right over there on that side of the stage to come under care of the Presbytery of the Mid-Atlantic. As you can imagine, I was a little bit nervous to stand before everybody to share my testimony. And so what they did was they brought all of the candidates into Ron's office. And Ron talked to us. He has his calming presence about him that you all have experienced. And he told us, when we should come in, where we should sit, when we should stand, and when we should speak. Not much has changed in ten years, has it, Ron? (laughs) But in all seriousness, I come this morning resting upon the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and hoping in the power of His Spirit to open before you the very Word of God. And so let us now... Open up our Bibles to the book of Romans. We will be in chapter 10, looking at verses 5 through 13. It's pew, in your pew Bible, it's page 946. 946. We will begin in verse 5, going through verse 13, but focusing our attention, especially this morning, On verse 9. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says... Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let us pray. Blessed be the Lord, the great God. Blessed be our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father of glory. We pray this morning, give us your Holy Spirit, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of revelation, the Spirit of holiness. Give us the Spirit of your Son, that sacred power living within us. Give us your Holy Spirit that we might be your sons and daughters, the heirs of your kingdom, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen and Amen. 
Michael Faraday is known for his dedication to seeking out knowledge by scientific experimentation. This 19th century British physicist has in fact been deemed the greatest experimentalist in all history. If he read something in a chemistry book, he would test it. If he had a hypothesis, he would pursue it. Always seeking to have certainty based on objective, verifiable, scientific fact. Yet Mr. Faraday was not only a scientist, but he was a Christian. A man who was devoutly dedicated to serving his church as an elder and witnessing to Christ in and through his life's priorities. And is often the case The world could not wrap its mind around this seeming paradox. How could a modern man, dedicated to the search for objective truth, order his life according to the speculations of religion? How could a man known for experimentalism in chemistry and physics blindly place his faith in an unseen God? The story is told that as he was approaching death, a journalist came to to him with this question. Mr. Faraday, in the face of death, how can you hold your speculations concerning the human soul and death? Right? You get the heart of the question, don't you? How can you have assurance about something you have no evidence to support? You can't form an experiment to test your theory of the atonement. You can't create a reproducible procedure that will confirm your hope in the resurrection. How can you, Mr. Faraday, who are so dedicated to experimental knowledge, have assurance in the speculations of your religion? And the question goes even deeper than that. Yes, there might be uncertainty about particular religious beliefs, yet even more than that is the question of personal salvation. Say everything you believe is true. How do you know it's true in your case? How do you know that the promises of salvation will be fulfilled on your behalf? How do you know that you will receive forgiveness of sins and a righteous standing before God? There's no experiment you can do to prove it. What are you placing your eternal hope in? And this is the question that we come to this morning. How can you, Christian, who live in a world dominated by doubt, have assurance in what you believe? How can you have assurance that the gospel of grace is true? That you will be saved. In our passage for this morning, the Apostle Paul is addressing this very question. What is the ground of our certainty that we will be saved? From where does our assurance for a future life come? And in short, the answer Paul gives is that the one and only ground for assurance is God Himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the ground of our assurance of salvation. The 2016 Oxford Word of the Year was post-truth. It describes a political culture that is based more on appeals to emotion than objective facts. 
And yet the application of a post-truth world is so much wider than politics. We live in a culture that is quickly running away from the concept of objective public truth. We've all heard people say things like, well, that may be true for you, but not for me. That's okay if you believe that truth, but I'm going to follow my own truth. As though truth were something that we could each form by our own decisions. Yet when we come to the Word of God, we see a world that is very different. A world that is rooted in historical truth. Look at verse 9 of your text again. Look down at your Bible and see that it says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord you will be saved. The first thing that we see in our text is that to have assurance of salvation, every Christian must confess the truth of the Gospel. In early Christianity, the phrase, Jesus is Lord, acted as a summary of belief in the saving work of Jesus Christ. That is, the Gospel. It was the first and most basic creed. In these words is a proclamation that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and therefore the sovereign King of heaven and earth. You see, the Christian faith is rooted in historical realities, objective truth. The Bible records for us that God created this world good and free from sin. That Adam, our first father, willingly rebelled against God and plunged all of humanity into sin and death and that every single one of us now stands guilty before God. And if something is not done about this, we would all perish. We need salvation. This is truth. Yet God was not pleased to leave humanity in such a state of sin and death. So He willingly chose to save men and women out of condemnation and give them forgiveness and eternal life through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus was born into history. He lived, He taught, He loved, He obeyed, and then He willingly died on behalf of His church to pay the penalty for sin. The sin of all His people placed on Him. The righteousness of all His life given to them. He received our punishment. We received His reward. Salvation eternally secured because of His work in history. This is not just a neat idea. It's not just a fun story. It is truth. And if you would have assurance of your salvation... You must confess this gospel truth. This is why it's been the practice of Christians throughout history to summarize the faith into creeds and confessions and catechisms. Because our faith is based upon truth that is to be confessed and believed. You see, it's not just enough to feel like you are saved. It's not enough to say, well, I'm at peace with myself and that is enough. Your salvation must be based on reality. As Westminster chapter 18 says, This certainty is not based on the fallible hope of guesswork or probabilities. 
Rather, it is the infallible assurance of faith established on the divine truth of the promises of salvation. And I would encourage you, Rivermont, as a body, you have been faithful to the profession of faith. Throughout the years, you have not given in to the pressures of culture that have sought to evacuate truth from the church. You are a body who continues to teach and confess and believe the truth of the gospel. In worship, you continue to proclaim the creed. In discipleship, you continue to teach the confession. In the community and the world, the truth of the gospel is being proclaimed by this church. And into the future, we must continue to rest upon the concrete realities of the Gospel. How might we have assurance of salvation? By confessing with our mouths the truth, Jesus Christ is Lord. And yet, there must be more than a confession of truth. To have assurance of salvation. The story is told of a British actor who asked his audience what they would like him to perform. A minister stepped forward and requested that he recite Psalm 23. Now the actor was a bit surprised at the request, but said he would oblige if the minister would also be willing to read the psalm following his performance. And so he agreed. Now the actor used all of his rhetorical skill, emphasizing every syllable correctly, using proper tone and pitch to capture and communicate the meaning, and the audience was well entertained by his performance. But then the humble minister stepped forward. He too read the psalm, but he stumbled over words. He failed to inflect all of the words properly, and yet the effect was profound. The actor came forward and declared, I know the psalm. This man knows the shepherd. You see, in our quest for assurance, we must begin with objective truth, but we cannot stop there. If we would have assurance of our salvation, we must not only confess the truth of the gospel with our mouths, but we must also believe the truth of the gospel in our hearts. We must not only know salvation, we must know the Savior. Look again at verse 9. In your Bible, the Apostle says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Assurance of salvation must come from a heart that has experienced the new life of the risen Savior. Now as Reformed folks, we are very keen on objective truth. We like the facts. I am sure out here are our fair share of doctors, accountants, and engineers. But we must not so isolate the work of God to outward truth only. We must realize that there has to be an inward experience of grace in the heart 
that changes us. If there is no heartfelt response to the work of Christ, we have not understood it rightly. Therefore, John Calvin speaks of saving grace this way. He says, It now remains to pour into the heart itself what the mind has absorbed. For the Word of God is not received by faith if it flits about in the top of the brain, but when it takes root in the depth of the heart. Have you experienced the work of God in your heart? This is what the Bible calls the new birth. It is the taking out of the heart of stone and the giving of the heart of flesh. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to take one who is spiritually dead and to breathe new life into him. You see, apart from the work of the Spirit, the human heart cannot believe that Christ has been raised from the dead. But when the Holy Spirit breathes life into your dead soul, you are given eyes to see and ears to hear the risen Jesus Christ. You believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead because your heart has been raised from the dead into new life. Again, sometimes as Reformed Christians, we can get fearful of subjective experiences We want to base the assurance of salvation on hard facts alone. Yet when we sever the outward realities from the inward work of the Spirit, we sever the branch from the vine. The two must go together. We must have both witnesses. We must have the work of Christ accomplishing the promises of God in the world. And we must have the work of the Spirit applying them to our hearts. It is not true assurance of salvation that merely assents to theological truth. Dead orthodoxy is no orthodoxy at all. Rather, true assurance is rooted in a new heart that truly knows and believes in the risen Savior. Now at this point it could be rather easy for us to fall into a false understanding of the work of salvation and where we are to root our assurance. You might look at verse 9 in your text and say, okay, well, if I'll confess the right truths and if I'll have the right experience, then I will have done all that is necessary to be saved. Yet, if we come away with this picture of salvation, then we have no assurance. And we will have misunderstood the Word of God. You see, Paul is laboring in chapter 10 to dissuade us from resting the assurance of our salvation upon anything other than the unconditional election of God's grace in Jesus Christ. In the context, he's arguing against a false understanding of the Old Testament. That is, the belief that any man could find life by the law. Rather, he explains through quoting Deuteronomy that God's salvation comes to us by His divine initiative alone and not by our human power of reasoning. The truths that we confess with our mouths are not something that we have figured out, but something that has been given to us. Look at verse 6 of your text. Paul, quoting Deuteronomy and adding his own bit of instruction, says... Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. 
That is to bring Christ down. You see, Paul is saying, you don't have to go up to heaven to find the truths that you are to proclaim. If you do that, you are demeaning the incarnation of Christ. Christ came to us with the truth. And so we are not going out and figuring out by our own abilities what we are to believe. But God has brought them to us in Christ. And the rebirth that we experience in our hearts. It is not something that we have manufactured or done on our own. We stir ourselves up to these emotions and finally feel like, yes, I'm saved. We cannot bring our dead souls back. We need Christ to go into the abyss and rescue our souls from death. And to even consider that you are the one who caused your heart to be born anew is to dishonor the death resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 7. That's Paul's argument. He says, again, quoting Deuteronomy and then adding his own bit of interpretation, who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. It is God the Son who went into the grave to deliver you from death. It is He who ascended on high and sent forth the Holy Spirit to bring life to your dead heart. Salvation comes from God's work alone. A seminary professor of mine once said, if you had to summarize the Reformed faith in a sentence, it would be this. God saves sinners. It is God who saves And not we who save ourselves. For we cannot read Romans 10 without remembering Romans 9. In verses 15 and 16 we read, For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It is God who saves sinners. And we do not say this in a cold, clinical, or detached way as so often has happened. For when we say God saves sinners, we say it with a mouth that has confessed the truth. We say it with a heart that knows the risen Savior. When we say that God saves sinners, we say it with a pulse that quickens. We say it in our eyes filled with tears. We say it and our breath catches in our chest. Because we know that we are sinners. We know that had it not been for His mercy, that we would have been condemned. We know that had He not chosen us in love, that we would have continued in sin. We say it as one who has been snatched from death itself and has been given eternal life in Christ Jesus alone. Where does your salvation lie, Christian? Is it in your learning? Is it in your theological precision? Is it in your religious experiences? Do you rest on your ability to live by the law meticulously, making sure that you follow every rule and regulation? If you rest on any of these foundations, you will never gain a certainty of faith. For we change. We forget. We continue to sin. If you look to your own life to find the hope of salvation, 
then you will never have peace. When hardships come, you'll question, is God really for me? When you don't feel the Lord's presence in worship or in your personal time of devotion, you'll wonder, do I really have the Spirit of the risen Christ? When you fail morally, you will either justify your sin or you will condemn yourself as someone who is lost. Yet, when you know that God is the only ground and reason for your salvation, not you, but God, that your salvation rests on His eternal unchanging decree, then you will have an unshakable assurance that you will be saved. And so when Mr. Faraday was asked how he could hold his speculations about God in the hour of his death, he replied, Speculation? I know nothing about speculation. I'm resting on certainties. For I know whom I've believed and am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I have committed unto Him against that day. If you are resting your hope of salvation upon the speculations of human knowledge, turn to divine truth and confess that Jesus is Lord. If you are founding your salvation upon emotional experiences, turn to the Holy Spirit and believe that Christ has been raised from the dead. If you are hoping that by the power of your own will, you will choose to be saved, then submit to the truth that it is God alone who saves sinners. The foundation is not sifting sand. It is a solid rock. It is not speculation. It is certainty. It is not a probability of human ability, but rather it is the assurance of the sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love of God in Christ Jesus alone. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.